Father, we do once again thank You for this time, this privileged time where we get to open Your Word together as Your people. We do pray that by Your Spirit, You would help us to not only hear with physical ears, but spiritual ears, to see what's before us not only with physical eyes, but spiritual eyes, that we might see Your glory in Christ and worship from sincere hearts. We commit this time to You in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we have been, as you know, considering over the last several weeks the issue of the last days, eschatology, the study of last things, the last days particularly as it's presented in Matthew 24, which as we have covered has been a particular focus on the last days and God's last and final plans for His people, the nation of Israel. Namely, in Matthew 24, he's answering their questions then about the return of the Messiah. A return that at the time of his answering they did not understand was yet far in the future. But nonetheless, that is the time that Christ focused on. It is a time where God will uniquely pour out his wrath on the earth for a period of seven years, as Daniel anticipated in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy about God finishing up his plans for his people. It's a time of great destruction, it's a great time of great sorrow, a time of great woe. It is a time where an individual who has been anticipated ever since the coming of Christ will be revealed the Antichrist and the false prophet, and he will establish and rule over a worldwide kingdom that is designed for one purpose, to receive for himself what belongs to Christ alone, namely authority and rule and worship primarily. And he will seek to banish from his kingdom on this earth anything that smacks of the name of Christ and banish God's people Israel. And then we covered last week about Jesus' own anticipation of His return. It's a return in power and it's a return in glory. It's a return that will bring destruction and devastation even to the physical universe, but primarily to those who mount up against Him in rebellion. A rebellion that will be ended immediately when He comes back to the earth to establish His kingdom. Now, in all of these things, some have wondered, and some of you, I'm sure, about what about the rapture? What about Christ returning for His church? Is the church participating in all of these events that Jesus is laying out in Matthew 24? Are His people going to experience God's wrath on the earth? Are they going to witness the rise of the Antichrist? What is our relationship to all of these events that Jesus has been laying out. Well, we're going to cover that this morning by considering the rapture. By considering the rapture of the church. Now, central to salvation, essential to salvation, and a mark of a regenerate heart is at its most base level to love the Lord Jesus Christ. To love Him, to treasure Him, to desire Him, to seek Him, to want to honor Him, to spend time with Him. He is our greatest love. And to be with Him then is the greatest longing of our heart, the greatest longing of the heart in the heart of God's people. It's not surprising then that the very last words of the New Testament, of Scripture, anticipate this time. This, it's a spirit produced and motivated longing of the heart of the church for the return of Christ. He says this in Revelation twenty two seventeen. Just listen. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy and this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. In verse 20, he says this. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the longing of the church. It's the cry of the church. And it is in part what we anticipate this morning, even in the Lord's Supper, as we remember that together. Not only His death and His resurrection, not only our present fellowship with Him and one another, but also His return for His church. 
So the church longs for the return of Jesus Christ. We long for Him to establish His kingdom. We long for Him to bring justice to an unrighteous world. We long for Him to vindicate His great name and His truth and His glory to a world that rejects it. We long for Him to vindicate His people. And we long for Him to establish righteousness on earth. But more than all of these things, we long to be with Him. We want His presence and the presence of the Father. And it's this longing for His presence that is the unique subject matter of the rapture. Now, there's no way that we're going to be able to cover all of the nuances and arguments and so forth for the rapture. The issues are very complex. They involve many branches of our study and of theology and our exegesis and hermeneutics and all of those fancy words about how we understand what the Bible means by what it says. It's a complex issue, and there's no way that we're going to cover all of those things this morning. So my goal this morning as we discuss this topic is essentially twofold. First, it is to introduce us to the concept of the rapture so that we have a better understanding of what it is in different ways that it's been understood in a very broad sense. Secondly, it is to encourage our hearts with the truth that Jesus is coming for His church. It is to encourage our hearts with the reality that as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we shall always be with the Lord when He returns. So I want to begin, first of all then, by simply making a statement on the rapture. A statement on the rapture. What is the rapture? What does that mean when we speak of the rapture of the church? Let's start with a definition. The term rapture comes from a a Latin verb, rapio, which means to, to catch up, to snatch, to take away is the basic idea. And that Latin term comes from a statement in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, that the church will be caught up snatched up, taken away to meet the Lord in the air. The Greek verb there is arpoxo. It means to catch up. And the term rapio, the Latin term, translates it. And therefore we get the term rapture. Rapture. It is the Lord's taking His church to be with Himself. So the essential teaching of the rapture then is that Christ will personally return from heaven to bring all who are His, both alive and dead, who belong to Him, who are in Christ, Christians as it were, to be with Himself and with His Father in heaven forever. As was already mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we'll turn to later, it is to say that all the saints are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Those who are dead receive resurrected bodies. Those who are alive and remain receive translated eternal bodies. In other words, they weren't raised from the dead, but they do receive their new and eternal body. It's a glorious time. It's a glorious time. And it is the time that Paul longed for, as he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me just read this to you. He says, We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And he speaks also to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And so ultimately what's even behind all of that is just to be with the Lord in our forever body, the resurrected body, our eternal body. And that is at the heart of then the rapture. Now let me begin then by noting first, and very briefly, some wrong approaches to the rapture. Why the rapture is itself a glorious truth, it is a wonderful truth, it is a part, an essential part of the hope of the church, tragically there have been some wrong approaches that undermine its significance in the life of God's people. One of those is this, and I'll mention two. One wrong approach to the rapture is to attempt to predict the precise date of the rapture. To attempt to predict the, uh, the exact date. Unfortunately, some who rightly hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, which we'll talk about in a moment, have wrongly and unbiblically and shamefully tried to predict the exact time of Christ's return for His church. Two of the most contemporary and recent examples, not the only, but the most contemporary, would be one, 
Hal Lindsey, you know that name, Late Great Planet Earth. Some of you may have read that book. And God has used it despite its many imperfections. Hal Lindsey, who was captured with the idea of the return of the Lord, understood in Matthew 25, verse 32, which we'll get to eventually. It's actually our next verse in Matthew. Uh, Jesus says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branches are to become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that the summer is near. He says in verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. How Lindsay understood the fig tree there then to be the nation of Israel. And when the nation of Israel was again recognized as a nation, which it had not been ever since about 135 A.D., that they were now back in the land, and he understood generation there of Matthew 24 or 34 to be defined as 40 years based on a passage in Numbers chapter 32. So, do the math. If they're a nation in 1948, this generation will see all these things, and a generation is 40 years, when is Christ going to return? 1988, right? You got it, good. And so that's what he said, that Christ is going to return in 1988. And many people bought onto that and they believed it. And in fact, however, he was wrong. He was wrong. It didn't happen. We're still here. Harold Camping, a name that we're familiar with, recently predicted that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. Now, this, in fact, was his second attempt to predict the exact date of Christ's return. The earlier attempt that he, uh, or the earlier suggestion was September 6, 1994. In both cases that he made his prediction, people sold their homes. Some got rid of all their assets and just gave it away. They did massive changes in their lives, quit their jobs and so forth. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. 2011 came and 2011 went. And Harold Camping is now with the Lord and knows better and I'm sure would retract everything that he says. But nonetheless, it brought great devastation to many people because he wrongly tried to predict the date of the Lord's return. And as I said, there have been many other predictions and particularly Jehovah's Witnesses have made many attempts to try to predict the return of the Lord. But each time that this is done, it's unbiblical, as was mentioned, it's shameful, and it causes a great deal of harm to some sincere Christians who really do long for the return and want it to be on that date. But Jesus clearly stated that on that day or that day and, and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone, which He says in Matthew 24, verse 36. In other words... It's foolish, it's ungodly, it's unbiblical, it's shameful, it's harmful to the people of God to ignore Christ's own plain statement and try to predict an exact date for the rapture. And unfortunately, that's been the representation of that idea to many. So one wrong approach is to try to predict the date. Another one is this, and I'll mention it just briefly. It is to overstress its importance. Now, understand what I mean by that. You cannot overstress the importance of the church's longing to be with Christ. You cannot overstress the greatness and the glory and the reality of Christ returning for His church to take us to be with Him. What I mean by this is simply this, that some people make the details of eschatology the very centerpiece of their theology. And they wrongly use it to divide from other Christians, to be critical, to put down, to disdain them. And that is wrong. That is also ungodly. These are very complex issues. And while we hold firmly to what we believe, we understand that every position has difficulties that it has to deal with. Every position. God has not made it as clear as we would have liked, but we believe He's made it clear enough to hold to what we hold to. But as important as it is, we should understand that it is not the basis of our fellowship with other believers, nor our love and our care for them, nor our desirability to learn from them in other areas and to be challenged in our own thinking. A mark of spiritual maturity is to be able to discuss matters that you disagree with with another believer passionately and yet in love and putting them in their proper place. Paul warns in 2 Timothy 2.14 that words that are used 
uselessly. Arguments that are useless and that have no real productive value leads to the ruin of the hearers. And we would want to be cautious of doing that. So outside of wrong approaches to the rapture, there's also different theories of the rapture. Different theories of the rapture. And I want to mention up front then, first, to to believe in a millennial kingdom, which is something that we'll discuss next week. To believe in a literal millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign of Christ on the throne of David, on a renewed earth where the wicked are removed, is then to necessitate belief in the rapture. Because John clearly lays out for us in Revelation 19 that Christ returns to the earth with his saints. And that is an event that happens before his sitting on the throne, his glorious throne, and establishing his kingdom on the earth while Satan is bound for 1,000 years. So to hold to a millennial kingdom necessitates the rapture. And that's clearly understood by all who do understand the millennial kingdom. Except for one group, I would just mention in passing, those who believe that there will be a partial rapture, which is rather bizarre, but they would hold then that when Christ, or before he comes to to establish the millennial kingdom, that he's only going to take the faithful to himself. He'll take the faithful to himself. The unfaithful who are regenerate but not walking faithfully with him will be left. But outside of that, there's universal agreement that among those who hold to a millennial kingdom that Christ will return before that time. That's universal. Everybody understands that much. The discussion isn't whether Christ will return to receive his church to himself. The question deals rather with the timing of his return. In other words, even more specifically, what is the relationship of the rapture to the tribulation period? What is the relationship of the rapture to the tribulation period? Where, in terms of timing, where will Christ come from heaven to receive the church to himself in relation to God's unique and distinct period of pouring out his wrath on the earth for seven years? Now, there are then three major positions... And again, this is just an overview. And of of course, uh, and not surprising, in each one of these there are variations and there are different nuances uh, by those who hold to them. But these are the three main representative views of the rapture. The first is this, post-tribulation. Post-tribulation. This view states that Christ will return for His church after or at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Hence the idea post, which is after. They say then that the events described by Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 28, and by John in Revelation 6 through 19, are events that the church will experience. In other words, the church will experience fully the horrors of God's judgment that are going to be laid out on the earth, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, The bowl judgments, as terrible as they are. The church will then, according to this view, experience the rise of the Antichrist and the full fury of his hatred against Christ and the nation of Israel. And after they have experienced all of these things along with the rest of the world, Christ will then descend from heaven and all the saints dead and alive will meet him in the air and then immediately return with him as he destroys his enemies and establishes the millennial kingdom. Now there are some post-tribulationists who don't hold to a millennial kingdom. They simply say Christ will take those who are his at that time to be with him forever in heaven. This view, however, misunderstands the nature of the tribulation, which is specifically God's wrath poured out on an unbelieving world, something that has no relationship to the church who has been rescued from His wrath, something we will mention later. And it fails to understand the tribulation primarily as God's dealing with the nation of Israel and not the church. There are other arguments, but those are key. A second position, then, is not post-tribulation, but mid-tribulation. You can guess by the name. This view states that the church will go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but will be raptured just before the man of lawlessness is revealed. And he unleashes his worldwide suffering on the nation of Israel and those who profess the name of Christ. 
Even more significantly, they understand that this final half of the tribulation, the final three, half, uh, three and a half years of the tribulation, is a distinct or a unique time of God's wrath on the world. In other words, the second half is a different degree and intensity of God's wrath than the first half of the tribulation, the first half of the three and a half, or the first half of the week, the first three and a half years. They would hold that the two witnesses who are raptured in Revelation eleven twelve we won't go there, are representative of the church. They're not two individuals, but they represent the church. They also hold that the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, something we've read before, refers to the church. Thus, it is the church's removal just before the revelation of the Antichrist. A variation of this view, sometimes known as the pre-wrath view, sets the time even more exactly and states that for the last 21 months, so a little less than three years of the tribulation, uh, will, the church will be taken away then because that is what marks a distinct time of God's wrath. Some problems with this view is that it underestimates the seriousness of God's judgments during the first three and a half years of the 70th week. All of that is described as the wrath of God and is part of the day of the Lord, the judgment part of the day of the Lord that was anticipated by the prophets and mentioned in the New Testament. It also confuses the seventh trump of the angel in, 11, in Revelation 11.15, which announces judgment with the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15.52 that announces salvation. Again, there are other arguments, but those are the main ones. So there is a post-tribulational view. After the uh, tribulation, Christ will rapture his church and then bring them into the millennial kingdom. There is a mid-tribulation view that says Christ will come in the middle before a unique period of Christ's wrath, take his church out, then later will bring them with him as he establishes his kingdom after he judges all the wicked of the world. And then there is what's known as the pre-tribulation view, and you can imagine what that is. That is to say that Christ will come and receive his church to himself before he unleashes the seven years of his divine wrath on a wicked and an unbelieving and a rebellious world. This is, in fact, the position of Newtown Bible Church. And it can be taken directly from our statement of faith, which I will read to you now. Quote, Christ Christ will return personally and bodily before the seven-year tribulation to remove his church from the earth. Between this event and his glorious second coming with his saints, he will reward all believers according to their works. End quote. That's in the statement of faith of Newtown Bible Church. In other words, this view maintains that Jesus Christ will come from heaven to bring his church to himself. This will include the resurrection of all church-age saints, or the translation of their body, as mentioned earlier. It will be the beginning, then it will be the event that marks the beginning of the tribulation. Or in other words, it's the event that happens just prior to the beginning of the tribulation period. Once we are with the Lord in resurrected bodies... Several events will then take place. First of all, there will be the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ. That is spoken of by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Interestingly, he makes that statement after what we read earlier, the longing to be clothed with our heavenly tent. That's precisely what we would expect. Resurrection, our eternal bodies, then the judgment seat of Christ will take place. It is a judgment of rewards. Pastor Parker spoke on that. I don't know how long ago you can look online. But it is a judgment where believers will be there and they will be judged for rewards in heaven. The next event that will happen to the raptured church, that is, beloved, by the way, you and me, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I will be those who have those bodies are standing before the Lord and also will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 7 through 10. After this, we will return to the earth with the Lord and after his judgment on the earth and bounding of Satan, we will witness him sitting on his glorious throne, judging the nations and establishing his earthly Davidic kingdom in the land promised to Abraham on a renewed earth. That's the millennial kingdom. Then we... With the resurrection of the Old Testament, those of the Old Testament who are resurrected at the beginning of the millennium, we will, with all of those who have been spared, 
the destruction of Christ's return in Revelation 19 will enter into the millennial kingdom. We'll talk about that more next week. That is essentially what we would hold to be the consistent teaching of the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter. Now, how then was the pre-tribulation rapture understood in history? And I'm going to briefly mention this and then we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. So you can go ahead and put your finger there now. The common view of the early church, that is the church going into the 2nd century and the 3rd century and on, was post-tribulationism. Post-tribulationism. The idea that Christ would return once to gather His saints uh, after the tribulation. However, it was not the only view. Let me read to you just one passage from a work called The Shepherd of Hermes, which was written in the 2nd century A.D., about 160 in that area. He says this, Quote, you have escaped from great tribulation on account of your faith. And because you did not doubt in the presence of such as a beast, this is part of a vision, a beast that he saw earlier, a beast of destruction. Go therefore and tell the elect of the Lord his mighty deeds and say to them that this beast is a type of the great tribulation that is coming. And if then ye prepare yourselves and repent with all your heart and turn to the Lord, it will be possible for you to escape. End quote. So the idea was there, although it was not the predominant idea. Usually the idea of pre-tribulation rapture is associated with a name by J.N. Darby. J.N. Darby in the 19th century. And indeed it was through his study of scripture that that pre-tribulational rapture idea was brought forward. But the key question is not who believed it in church history or in contemporary church history, more contemporary. The question is this. What do the scriptures teach? What do the scriptures teach? What does the Bible say? And with that, let's finally turn to our passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is one of the primary passages in the New Testament that addresses the issue of the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. I'll begin reading in verse 13 and I'll go down to verse 18 in that section there. And then we'll walk through it and make some observations along the way. Begin with me in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Precious, precious chapter. Let's make a few observations. Look back up at verse 13. And we have to ask ourselves, and why is Paul launching into this discussion about the return of the Lord? What question, what issue is he addressing among the Thessalonian church? Paul is writing to this to the Thessalonians because of their fear that their loved ones who had already died as Christians would miss the glory of the return of the Lord for his church. He makes this clear in verse 14 when he says those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, that he's referring here to Christians, those who died as Christians. Asleep is, of course, a metaphor for death that's used only of believers And literally the statement is this, who have fallen asleep through Jesus, through Jesus. But the meaning is simply this, that they belonged to Christ at the time of their death. They belonged to Christ at the time of their death. I make a brief footnote here that if you have an English Standard Version, an ESV, they connect that phrase with the verb to lead and they translate it like this. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But that's not the best way to take it grammatically, nor is that how it's usually understood. Most translations have it understood as those who have fallen asleep in Jesus or through Jesus in terms of when they died. 
So he's referring to all believers in Christ since the time of Pentecost in Acts 2 until the, just before the beginning of the tribulation period. He's not talking about the resurrection of Old Testament saints here. He's talking about the resurrection of Christians. And that is important because Old Testament saints will be resurrected, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's very specific in who he identifies. This was then the longing of the church. If you have your Bibles open, look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Or verse 18, he says, he says this, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Look at the end of verse chapter 3. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of His saints. He is anticipating throughout the letter here this return of the Lord, this return of the Lord for His saints. His return of the Lord for the church. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Notice that little word as we do at the beginning of the verse 4. There he's explaining the reason for their hope. And it's essentially this. Just as Christ died and rose, so he will bring with him those who have died in him. Now note here that phrase with him is not to say he's bringing these saints with him. He's saying that he wants to come to bring these saints with him to heaven. Bring them saints back with him to where he came, namely from heaven in the presence of the Father. He's coming for his church. In other words, he's encouraging them and encouraging us with the fact that those who have died in Christ before his return will nonetheless see him in the return at the same time as those who are alive at that time. Now, note here, and this is important, Concerning that their concern is not the resurrection in general. They're not concerned that those who died in Christ would not be generally resurrected. They were clear about that point. The resurrection of believers was a basic and a central component of Paul's gospel. First Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. That's what he delivered to them as of first importance. Namely, that Christ died and that he rose according to the scripture. Even as a Pharisee, Paul understood the resurrection of the dead. It was basic to the hope of God's people. They're not concerned here then, in a general sense, about the resurrection of the dead. What they are concerned about is the dead's relationship to the return of Christ. And that's a very important point. It's not likely that Paul would have been referring also to an event after or even during the time of the tribulation. Because otherwise, the Thessalonians would not have been grieved at the death of those they loved. They would have been thankful. They would have rejoiced that those they loved would not have to experience the suffering that is coming upon the world. But they're not grieved that they missed the suffering, which they would have expected if that was in fact when Christ would return after the tribulation. Rather, they're grieved that they miss the glory of His coming and the experience of their salvation in that moment. Moreover, Paul has already made clear that the church will not go through the wrath of God. The church will not go through the wrath of God on the earth. The church now present on the earth will not experience His judgments on the earth during the tribulation period. So we can't be talking about something after that. Go back, flip back one more time to uh, chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians verse 9. He says this, They themselves report... About us, what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God, listen, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
Hell is never described as from the wrath to come. It's not talking about hell here. He's talking about a rescue of the people who belong to Christ from the wrath that is coming on the world, which he'll describe again in just a moment. He says the same thing in chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Just as you also are doing. Paul's not talking about their being freed from human suffering. In fact, he addresses that repeatedly in the epistle. Yes, they are going to suffer wrath from man and the hatred of man towards the name of Christ. The wrath he's mentioning that they will be spared from is specifically then the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And all of the seven year period of the tribulation is defined as the wrath of God. In Revelation 6.16, at the very, very beginning of the seal judgments, it is the wrath of the Lamb and of the Father. So again, he's not saying they won't undergo human suffering. He is to say they will not undergo God's specific wrath that's coming on the earth. Let me mention to you, you don't have to turn there, just one other verse. And I'm going to mention this briefly. Writing to the message, the church at Philadelphia, he says this, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. In other words, because you are demonstrating that you are a genuine believer in Christ, that you belong to the Lord, you will be spared from that which is coming on the world, which is described throughout the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 19. The idea of kept from here is not to protect the church within the tribulation, but to keep them from entering into the tribulation. That's the idea here. Now go back in verse... 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, Then also, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, he's identifying two groups of people here. Those who have fallen asleep, those who are dead in Christ, and those who are alive and remain. Both, he is saying, will be a part of Christ's return from heaven. In other words, both will receive their new bodies at this time together. One will not be, uh, do so first. And then they will go and see the Lord. They will go and see the Lord. Notice, secondly, that this is something that could happen at any moment. At any moment. He gives no preparatory signs here. He gives nothing that they should anticipate beforehand. Certainly not seven years of divine wrath on the earth. No signs such as Jesus mentioned in Matthew 24. He's just saying, what are they looking for? Not the tribulation. Not the time of God's wrath because you won't experience that. They're looking for and waiting. And we are looking for and waiting for the return of Christ from heaven to bring his church to himself. It's the imminent return of the Lord. And again, this return, these, these, this return for salvation and this return that is imminent is something that marks the rapture off from the second coming. Again, the very idea of imminence is that there are no preceding signs or events to take place first. Imminence doesn't simply mean that it could happen soon or that it will happen soon. It means that it's going to happen at an unexpected time. A time you cannot prepare for. A time, as Jesus said, determined only by the Father. These things, when these things will come. Notice also that Paul says, we who are alive and remain, which indicates or at least strongly implies that he himself thought it could happen during his lifetime, the lifetime that he is there, uh, when he was writing to the Thessalonian church. So his lifetime and theirs. Now, there is a sense in which the New Testament speaks of the imminency of both salvation and judgment. We'll look at that more when we go through the rest of Matthew chapter 24 and verses 25. But we can stay right here in 1 Thessalonians and notice that. Look down at verse 5. 
or chapter 5, excuse me. He says, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So now he's introducing a new subject, a new subject. Now as to the times. And he says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety. Destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. There he's referring to this time of judgment that, in, that is imminent, that is coming at a time when the world does not expect it to come. That is the beginning, as he calls it here, of the day of the Lord. Here he simply mentions that day. It is a day that will come unexpectedly upon the wicked. Just in the same way, so the return of Christ for his church will come unexpectedly. When you look at the sky, when you go out and you look at the clouds and you look at the heavens, you can look and think to yourself, this very moment, Christ could return for his church. That's what Paul is talking about here. And he's encouraging them with this fact, again, that those who have already died in Jesus will be raised before you, yes, but you will together go and meet the Lord in the air. In other words, he's saying, don't worry, you're all going to be with him together in your heavenly bodies. Look at verse 16. Again, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now notice here that the coming of calling of Christ, the the coming of Christ and the calling of his church to himself will be audible and visible. And that's an important point. Because sometimes people have spoke of a secret rapture, a hidden kind of rapture that's just going to take place in this secret kind of way and people are going to be taken away. But that's not at all what Paul says here. It's a rapture that will be audible. It will have audible elements to it. And it is a rapture that will be visible. Notice what he says. He'll come with a shout or the cry of command by Jesus. Maybe similar to what he said to Lazarus when he told him to come forth. Maybe he'll say, come up here. It'll come with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. And these could be three distinct sounds or part of a single sound of the one event of his coming to bring the church to himself. But the point is, is that it will be known. It will be audible and it will be, in some sense, visible. But that does not mean that the unbelieving world is going to understand it. If he were to come today with these audible and visible elements and take us away, it is not to say that everybody would understand what's happening. This wouldn't be the first time that that happened. Let me remind you of Acts chapter 9. You have to turn there. You know the story, but let me remind you of it. Acts chapter 9, God called Saul who became known to us as Paul. He revealed himself to him in glory. And it says, that Paul did when he recounts this story, that the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So in that case, Christ revealed himself to Paul, which was the point then, or leading to of his repentance and faith in Christ, He there reveals himself in a magnificent way, speaks audibly, but no one else could see Christ, but they did hear him, but they couldn't understand it. They didn't know what it meant. Paul later refers to this when he was giving his defense before the Jews in Acts chapter 22, verse 9. He says, describing that, And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. In other words, Christ revealed himself in a glorious way. He spoke, but those around did not understand what was going on. They heard something. They heard something significant. They even saw a light, according to Paul, but they did not understand what was going on. Similar thing happened in John chapter 12. 
Jesus prayed and said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying that an angel had spoken to him. They heard a sound. It was a thundering sound. It was a supernatural sound. It was a great sound, but they did not understand it. They did not know what was happening. In a very similar way, and that is how the Lord will return for His church. There will be a significant marks or sound, audible and visible, something that the world will see, but they will not understand it. They will only know that something significant has taken place and no doubt something that will be twisted by the wicked world to entrap people even further in their deception. It will be supernatural, it will be startling, it will be frightening to the world, not to us. It will be misunderstood and it will also be confusing to the unbelieving world. So he'll return with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Notice here that this trumpet should not be confused with the great trumpet of Matthew chapter 24 that we noted last week. And as we noted then, there are a variety of trumpets throughout the nation of Israel. There were trumpets to call to war, call back from war, warn to war, trumpets for the feast, and so on and so forth. There were a variety of kinds of trumpets and purposes. Here, the trumpet is to call the dead and alive in Christ to himself in the air to be with him. No signs before this event, again, as there were in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. There were many signs that preceded it. Not so here. There's simply the return of Christ for his own. And notice here, there's no word in here of the terrible judgments that are to come, only of the salvation of God's people to be with him forever. To be with him forever. Notice lastly here, verse 17. He says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That term caught up, as I've already mentioned, is where we get rapture. The Latin translation of the Greek there is where we get rapture. They will be caught up, snatched, taken up to the Lord. The Greek term here has even a sense of violence to it. A sense of violence to it. In other words, not violence in something that is bad, like perpetrated against, but in terms of its immediacy, in terms of its suddenness, in terms of its force. We will be caught up with the Lord in the air. It will be sudden. It's a dramatic term. It's a decisive action. And notice again, this is not specifically a resurrection for all believers. The resurrection is only for those who have died and fallen asleep. But it is For some, a resurrection, and for others, a translation of our bodies, somewhat like Enoch or Elijah, similar to that, where they were simply taken up to be with the Lord. And so it will be with those who are alive and remain. Again, this is what Paul longed for in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Not to be unclothed, but to be clothed with his immortal body, his imperishable body. Mark this down, don't turn there. He's the same longing he mentions, and we mentioned this last week in Philippians chapter 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he will return from heaven. And what will he do? He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That's what we're waiting for. That transformation, that receiving of the new body that will be in conformity with the body of His glory, the body of His resurrection. There's another passage that significantly speaks of this and parallels what Paul is talking about here. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 1, actually beginning in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. 
We will not all sleep. Why? Because when Christ returns, some will be alive and remaining on the earth. But they will all be changed, as we've already mentioned. For some, a resurrection. For some, just a translation or a transformation into their eternal body. When will this happen? In verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Again, just as in 1 Thessalonians 4, there is an anticipation of the suddenness, the quickness, the immediacy of the return of Christ and the translation of our bodies into our eternal dwelling place. It's quick. It's dramatic. It's sudden. It's imminent. Now, Paul notes here a last trump, a last trump. It could refer to the third and last trump in Roman war camps that called the soldiers to move forward, to march forward, to battle. He could be using that kind of illusion. Some see it as the seventh trump of Revelation, we already noticed. But that is a, that is a trumpet of judgment. It's not what Paul is talking about here. Nor does that trumpet in Revelation mention the resurrection. Here, last most likely refers to the last trump that marks the end of the age of the church before the tribulation. But the point here is this, that just as Paul anticipated in 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ is returning in a glorious manner to take us to himself. The last part, he says then that we will be with Christ together. Those who have died and those who are alive and joined together will join together with all of their loved ones in the Lord who are separated at that time, but will be united and meet the Lord together in the air. To put it in personal terms, if the Lord were returned to right now for his church, Barbara would be with her mom immediately meeting the Lord in the air, together, reunited after a brief moment of separation to forever be with the Lord. He's saying to them, that's what's going to happen. Those whom you've loved who've already fallen asleep, you're going to be with them in that moment. They're not going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. You're going to be together. You'll be together. We will meet the Lord in the clouds. It's a visible representation of the presence of God. It may be clouds like it were Sinai at other points in the history of Israel. They're not ordinary clouds. They attend the personal presence of the Lord. And he brings us up to meet him in the air. And again, this is an important distinction from the second coming. This is to be with the Lord in the air, to be taken back to where he came, namely to heaven, to always be with him. In the second coming, the Lord descends all the way to the earth, and it is attended with judgment. But again, that's not the context here. It's not the context here. And those are some of the most precious words in Scripture. I can still remember... My second year of seminary in a Greek class, and for the reading those in Greek for the first time, and my heart was captured forever with the Lord, to be forever with the Lord. How precious are those words, how encouraging they should be, how they are the longing of every believer's heart to be forever with the Lord. In fact, that is the very thing that Jesus encouraged his disciples with the night of his betrayal and before his crucifixion. John 14, he says this, right after he told them about his death, again he told them about his death, and Peter determined that he was going to be one that didn't fall away. And then after Peter makes that statement, Jesus tells him, you will, but then he gets comfort in verse 1 of chapter 14 of John. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's precisely the same comfort. He's going to return, come from where he was, namely with the Father. He's going to receive his church, his true disciples, to himself. And then he's going to take them to the place that's been prepared for them, namely dwelling places that are in his Father's house. 
He's going to come and take them to be with himself forever. An intimate fellowship with himself and the Father. Matter of fact, he uses that term abode only one other place in verse 23. And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Intimate, close, spiritual fellowship with the father and with the son. That's the promise. And Jesus is again, just as Paul's anticipating that he will come personally. He will come personally for his own. And the clear implication is that when he gathers his own to himself at that time, he will bring them back to where he came from, namely the presence of the Father in heaven. So that's the glorious hope of the rapture. That's the glorious hope that we have as a church when we will be forever with the Lord. I'm going to note last briefly, and this is going to lead us into the Lord's Supper. The implications of the rapture. The implications of the rapture. Well, one is obvious that we live with gratitude that we have been spared from the wrath of God. We are sinners. We deserve the wrath of God. Grace isn't simply receiving what we don't deserve. That's a rather mild and tame view of grace. Grace is saying that we who deserve and earned wrath by our sin rather receive the goodness of God toward us in His Son. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe honestly that your sin rightly provokes God's wrath and deserves eternal punishment? And that Christ is your only hope? That's that's the regenerate heart believes that and understands that. You and I are guilty, but God has spared us not only from eternal wrath, but even His wrath, which He'll pour out on the earth. Secondly, this is the implication of the effect it should have on us. One, we live with gratitude. We also live in holiness and hope of being with Christ. Anticipation of His coming doesn't produce laziness. It doesn't produce a laissez-faire attitude towards suffering or the wickedness of this world or the... The, the effects and the consequences of an unrighteous world on God's image bearers and on His church. It doesn't have a lazy attitude about those things or about life. In fact, it should motivate us to live all the more for His glory, to be abounding in the works of the Lord. Listen to Paul. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why, Paul? Looking, he says in verse 13, for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That should be the life of God's people because of the hope of God's people, namely the return of Christ for his church to be with him forever. And that is precisely the attitude that is to be stirred up in our hearts as we remember that sacrifice and we anticipate His return in the supper. Paul said this, actually, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Until He comes. And that coming is what we anticipate. We proclaim His atoning death. We anticipate His return. We commit ourselves freshly to live righteously and to live in the unity and love with one another that we share with the Son and with the Father in intimate fellowship by the Spirit. Who, even as we remember the Lord in the Supper, do have that heart-longing cry, Come, Lord Jesus, come, come. So let's pray and prepare our hearts to receive the elements and to remember our Savior the cost of our redemption, the present blessings that we enjoy in fellowship with Him and one another, and His soon and coming return. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the encouragements that You give us. We thank You for Your grace in Christ. We indeed are like those we've read about in Ephesians. We were dead in trespasses and sins. 
We lived in the futility of our minds, the darkness of our minds, enslaved to our sinful lusts. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But we who know you have been rescued. We have been called out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we have cleansing, and we have a certain hope. Encourage us, even now, as we remember these in the table that you yourself has instituted, I pray that it would be a heart with faith, of a faith. And I pray that if there's any heart that is not right with you here, whether it be one of your own children who is walking stubbornly in sin, if not outwardly, inwardly, with any of the things we've read about, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, critical spirit, that they would repent of that even now before the cross. And if there's any here who know you only on the outside and only in profession, but not in truth, I pray that you would reveal that to them as well and that you would lead them to a genuine faith in your Son. And we pray this in His name. Amen.